join with me. Can you stand if you're able? We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares Yahweh. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of Yahweh, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came... To the wine vat, to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares Yahweh. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of Yahweh's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, in your mercy, help us to hear today. Help us to hear of your goodness. Give us soft hearts and open ears so that we might repent and follow you. I pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, church. We read what may feel like quite an odd passage. It's like, okay, what in the world did we just read? We got a conversation about, you know, cleanliness and whether you touch something, whether it's clean or unclean. Like, what in the world is going on with this? And you get these pretty strong words from the Lord. You got God talking about how he ruined crops. So what do we do today with a message like this? can be difficult for us to wrestle through some of the truths that we find in here. This passage, this oracle of Haggai, it's the third oracle that Haggai gives, and it comes on the three-month anniversary of when they started building the temple again. Rebuilding the temple, I should say. Three months have gone by, and what we see here seems to be a rebuke, which seems kind of odd, because they've been faithful for three months. They did what the Lord asked them. And I think ultimately what we have here is not actually a rebuke. It's a reminder of where they were. God is using strong language to remind them of where they were and encourage them to continue pressing onward. It's really a reminder showing them of why what they were doing was so important. Why building the temple was indeed an absolutely primary thing that they needed to have going on in their life. Also, this is an invitation to us to continue trusting the Lord to provide. Ultimately, in this passage, we're going to see that we look back at the way things were 
but also there's a beautiful look forward that comes at the very end. All right, so we have been in this series, first thing first, looking at how God called his people to rebuild the temple. They had neglected rebuilding the temple. God called them out on it through Haggai, and they responded, unlike a lot of other places in Scripture. First week, we looked at the reality of their hearts, the reality of our hearts, to where we run after other things. We don't build what God has said first. And in this week, we're kind of revisiting a lot of those themes. But instead of God calling them out and saying, this is the reality of your hearts, he's instead kind of reminding them of the consequences of what had happened when they had failed to follow the Lord. So really, this is a look back, coupled with a future, pro- a future promise. So let's dive into the passage itself and see what he is exactly saying. Kind of picking up again in in verse 12, he poses this question. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And they answer no. And then he proposes, okay, well, what about something that's unclean? You know, if someone touches a dead body, then he goes and touches something else. Does that thing that he touched become unclean? And the answer is yes. And this ultimately is an illustration that Haggai is using. He's not concerned with holiness laws right here. Instead, he's getting at something deeper. By the way, the holy meat was the meat used in the sacrifices that they would have been uh, conducting at the altar. That's what he's talking about, the meat that you bring to sacrifice. Depending on the type of sacrifice, occasionally you'd be able to bring that meat home with you, or sometimes it would go to the priests, again, depending on what type of sacrifice it was. And so this meat, this holy meat didn't really spread holiness. It's not something that was transferable. So Haggai here is emphasizing the idea that cleanliness and holiness, not transferable. Uncleanliness, unholiness, is transferable. And we even understand that. If you clean up something, a mess on the floor with a rag, sure, you might clean up the floor, but your rag becomes dirty, and then anything that touches that rag becomes dirty. Cleanliness is not something that is transferred. But why is Haggai bringing this up? What's his point? Is he concerned with holiness laws right here? Well, ultimately, no, because in verse 14, we get the point of this little illustration that Haggai is bringing. In verse 14, he says, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares Yahweh. And with so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Okay, so this is his point, but it's still a little nebulous for us. What exactly is he saying? Well, when the exiles returned from Babylon, came back to Jerusalem, immediately they built an altar. And they were conducting sacrifices on it. And God here is telling his people, hey, as you were conducting those sacrifices, because the temple still lied in ruins like a corpse, everything you were doing there on that altar ultimately was not clean. You weren't putting my glory, my presence in the world first. And so kind of like a chain reaction, everything else further down the line was unclean. That temple is like a corpse. You have not placed me first, O people of God. Everything else is tainted. Now that seem a little, may seem a little unfair. Like, well, they were doing the religious things. After all, the law talks about providing sacrifices and how that was mandatory. 
doesn't actually talk about the mandatory nature of the temple. So they're doing all the religious things right, yet God still says they're unclean. They weren't placing the Lord first. We don't have any worship order notes, but in case you're following along, the first idea for today is this. Failure to place God's priorities first spoils the rest of our lives. Failure to place God's priorities first spoils the rest of our lives. They had everything right on the outside, yet their worship was spoiled. Everything else in their life was spoiled. We see that their harvests were spoiled. Not placing the Lord first is like a disease that just runs its course through the rest of your life. And the heart problem that we have is that we see misplaced priorities as not that big of a deal. Well, Lord, I know that you could have this area of my life. I know I haven't been this faithful over here. But everything else seems okay. I'll get around to that later. And God says, no, this is a tremendously important thing in my eyes. I long for you to be obedient and place me first. Now, I want to remind you that Haggai is preaching to a people who were being obedient. They were building the temple. So Haggai is saying to people who are right now being faithful, he was saying, you need to be reminded of this reality of your heart that you are going to want to move in the opposite direction. You're going to want to do the spiritual things on the outside, do your religious work, but you don't want to love me first. We need to be reminded of that and know that our hearts continually go in that direction. Because what happens is, as I don't place the Lord first, it's as if I'm wearing the wrong kind of glasses. Or maybe another way to put it, it's as if you're, you're buttoning up your shirt and getting the first button wrong. You know, if you get the first button wrong, the rest of them are all out of whack. And it's the same thing with putting the Lord's priorities first. It creates two problems. One, something else is going to be first. Some other wrong button is going to be in the wrong place. So you're going to be worshiping the wrong thing, first and foremost. But then secondly, because you're worshiping the wrong thing, the way you look at the rest of your buttons is going to be off. So, for example, if the Lord and his work, his people, his kingdom, his church is not first in your life, then what happens is, is you won't know how to think about your work. You're going to see it as just a way to get money. You're not going to know how to think about resting. You're going to work in order to rest instead of resting in order to work. That's the way God created us. We are to rest in order to work. It's all going to be about you. Your family is going to become something that takes precedence over the Lord. Instead of something that's entrusted to you and that you need to point to the Lord, it will become God himself to you. It'll become an idol. Everything will become off. It may look great on the outside, but ultimately it'll be rotten. It'll be rotten. Now, I say this with all tenderness and mercy. The truth is, is that many of us, we are walking in a way that looks great, but a love for the Lord above all things is not first in our lives. And it's like we're walking around with a buttoned up shirt that looks just completely ridiculous. 
but somehow we've put some sort of overcoat over it and so nobody knows. So church, I beg of you to take an assessment of your life and say, what is first? I was convicted of this uh, just this week, I, um, Monday night. I was convinced that our water softener, which is less than a year old, was broken. I was looking at it. I'm like, this salt level is just not going down. You know, I had adjusted the settings when the Sioux Center water all changed. And also, I kind of forgot that we were gone for a couple weeks. And so, you know, we weren't using any water for the water level to go down. And I remember coming up into the bedroom and, you know, we're getting ready for bed. And I just like slapped the bed as hard as I could. I was angry because all I could see was dollar signs and frustration. Because I'm always, I'm always convinced that our water softener is like breaking. I, I don't know why, but that's like, it, it, that's the thing for me. And the next morning, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there kind of having my devotions, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. In that moment, my money and my convenience were my God. All I could see what was being taken from me in case my water softener was broken. It's not broken, by the way. It's totally fine. But it was one of those moments where the Lord just allowed my eyes to be opened to just the, the nature of my heart and that I long to worship other things and I tend to not look at worshiping him and building his church first. Did I think about, when, when I thought about the, 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 what it was going to cost me, I thought about all the fun things that I would want to do with that money. I didn't think one, one thing about giving. Like that didn't impact me. But the truth was, it was all about me and what I wanted. So, where do you spend your time, your attention? Where does your treasure go? What causes you stress? That'll help you diagnose what is actually first in your life. Because if the Lord's temple, his church, is not first, everything else will be spoiled. All right. But also, this is the, the gloriousness of this passage. This is not the end. This is actually a hopeful passage. It doesn't feel so hopeful right now. But this passage is full of a glorious hope. Glorious hope. Before we get into it, I, I want you to uh, hear this, this kind of second point. And it's this. God invites us to trust him with our future needs in light of his unbreakable promise. He invites us, it's an invitation, to trust him with our future needs in light of his unbreakable promise. That's what we get in verses fifth, or starting in verses 15 to 17. So he just gets done with saying like, hey, you guys were crazy. You, you are chasing the wrong things. And in verse 15, he continues looking back, yet it's part of a greater message of hope. In verses 15 to 17, it starts with this. Now then, consider from this day onward. Now we saw that word consider back in week one, because it, uh, it was mentioned a couple times in chapter one. And it's one of the kind of big themes of Haggai. It's this idea of think deeply, ponder, in light of you needing to go a different direction. It's set your heart upon this. And he's saying, consider this. And he's going to present a scenario, which then he says, but it's not this way anymore. Or it's not going to be this way anymore, I should say. Consider this. And he lays out the way it was. Verses 16 and 17, he's like, hey, your crops were failing. When you went and tried to reap your harvest, there were only 20, or instead of 20, there were 10 measures. When you went to draw wine, there were 20, not 50. So their crops aren't yielding. And why? Because verse 17, God says, I struck you. Now, we may, that may make us a little uncomfortable. God struck them? 
And by the way, the Hebrew here leaves no doubt about this. It is a very active, the, the verb construction uses a particular way that Hebrew verbs uh, use or work to, to show, yes, indeed, God is the subject. He is acting. There is no doubt about it. He did this. Well, God, that doesn't seem too kind. Well, in, in week one, we also looked at the idea that God withholds his blessings from us in order to get our attention. And I, meant, and I said I would kind of go into more of that here during this week, so let's, let's dive in just a little bit. This is an act of kindness from the Lord because this really is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God is kind of, or Moses is recapping the covenant, and in 28, you get the blessings and the curses for what will happen if Israel succeeds or fails in living out their end of the covenant. So, in verse 15, we get into the curses. This is what Moses says in verse, or chapter 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he lists a whole bunch, skipping down to 22. Yahweh will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat. Now, get this and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. So those exact same curses that God mentions in Deuteronomy, they were experiencing now. So it's a reminder of the covenant that God had with them. Skip ahead to, a, uh, to Deuteronomy 30. Moses speaks about this, or God through Moses speaks about kind of the purpose of all these blessings and curses. Chapter 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, in other words, you consider, you consider, and you call them to mind, among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Think Deuteronomy 6 that we looked at a few weeks back. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. So God's actions of striking their harvest is a gracious response reminding them of the covenant that he had with them and calling them to walk with him. He's saying, look, you need me and I am here for you. The irony is, is they were so concerned with their own needs, their own paneled houses, their own harvests. They were so concerned with those things over what the Lord wanted that they ended up not receiving what they actually needed. God had said, if you had turned to me and followed what I'd wanted, you would have had it all. And that's the irony of idols. They promise us life. Do this. Love this thing over here. It'll bring you all the satisfaction you ever wanted. And ultimately, it brings nothing but death. It never delivers on what it promises. So church, it is good for the Lord to deprive us of the things that we need so that we will look to him. When you are at your lowest and most broken, it is then when you will turn to the Lord. So when you think about your own life, and perhaps you are experiencing great turmoil and stress, brokenness, perhaps the Lord is seeking to get your attention 
and it is a goodness and a kindness from him. Because in verse 18, we get a glorious invitation. Consider from this day onward. Consider. Consider. Think about this. Now, we're posed with another question, starting in verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Now, the time of year, by the way, this, this oracle would have been given on December 18th in the year 520. So we know the exact date based on what Haggai tells us when this would happen. So December 18th. Now, the way Israel's weather system works is you have a wet and a dry season. The wet season would have just started, and so the ground is becoming moist, and you need it to be soft in order to put your seed in the ground. And then the seed is there kind of over the winter during the wet season, and then come in spring, you know, it starts sprouting up and yielding its, uh, harv- or yielding its fruit and harvest over the late spring and early summer. And so when Haggai asked the question, is the seed yet in the barn? The answer is yes. They haven't planted anything. Yeah, the seed's yet in the barn. So of course there hasn't been a harvest. Because he says, indeed, the vine, the tree, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've yielded nothing. Well, yeah, because nothing's been planted. It's still, it's prior to seeding time. It's just, they're on the cusp of taking all the seed out of the barn. So God says, look, nothing has happened yet, but you're being faithful. Because of the covenant I have with you, I will bless you. God's promise here is not a mere, oh, you're doing what I want? Okay, I'm going to reward you. I'm blessing you. It's, it's, not a, it's not that. Instead, it's far more rich and far more beautiful. It's saying because I have made this unbreakable promise with you, because I have a beautiful covenant that I made with you, because of that, I will bless you. I said I would bless you. I will be faithful to you. I will be faithful to you. Now God has made a covenant with us. Covenant promise with us. We are under the new covenant. The old covenant is done. It's fulfilled. The new covenant is here and it is better. The old covenant dealt a lot with these physical promises of land and of harvests. But now we have something more full. Better. More glorious. Things that we actually need. And God is calling us in light of the new covenant to keep going and believe that he will indeed provide for us. God keeps his promises. And specifically, kind of two future needs that he has provided for us. He's provided some spiritual needs and physical needs. Some spiritual needs that he's provided for us. All you have to do is look in Ephesians 1. We'll be heading into Ephesians uh, come the new year. But in Ephesians 1, We see this giant list of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We have the fact that God is calling us to be, or is making us holy and blameless. He's adopted us as sons. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. All of the wickedness that we have done has been blotted out because of the blood of Christ. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been given an inheritance. We have all of these things in Christ now, these spiritual realities. We have them. But also one day we will inherit them in full in the new heavens and the new earth. So they are still also in the future. We await for their glorious realization in the flesh. 
So God has given us spiritual promises, but he also has promised physical things as well. We saw in the Sermon on the Mount that he has promised us that he will take care of our daily needs. He says that he cares more for us than the sparrows. We don't need to worry. There is nothing that we need that he will not ultimately provide. These are all promises that he has given us in the new covenant. And you know what? Here's the beauty of it. Because of Jesus and his faithfulness, because he perfectly walked with the Lord, we know that those blessings are indeed ours. That our reception of those blessings is not based upon our ability to fulfill obedience in full. But instead, God blesses us saying, here are these blessings and because you know that I will care for you, you are free to walk in obedience. What a beautiful truth the Lord gives us. As we trust in the Lord's gracious provision, we are free to not look to those things for their satisfaction. I don't need to look to my work in order to give me everything that I need. Now, you may be here this morning and you've never placed your confidence in God's ability to provide for your spiritual needs. Maybe you've called out to God to provide for your physical needs before, or maybe not. But maybe you've never cried out to God to save you from your sins. And God invites you to trust him, to call upon his name and be saved. See, we deserve to die because Jesus, or not, sorry, not because of Jesus, but because of what we've done. But because of Jesus, we can be saved. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice on the cross for sin. We deserve to die. Jesus didn't deserve to die, but he willingly laid his life down for us. He substituted his life for us. And he invites you to trust in his sacrifice, in his ability to pay for your sin. And you don't have to do a bunch of good things to get that sacrifice. He offers it. All he wants is you, your whole heart, all of you. He wants you to believe. And he invites you to do that today. I want to share just briefly just some of the beautiful ways God has provided for our church in the past year. Because this is such a, a, a passage of hope. It really is. It, it reads harshly. But it, all that harshness is, is laid out there for us to look to God's goodness in his provision. So I wanted to share just some ways that God has provided for us as an answer to prayer. Every week as staff, we, we, we have our prayer time on Wednesday afternoon. And we have these prayer priorities, these specific things that we feel like God laid on our hearts that we want to pray for again and again, week after week, trusting the Lord uh, to, to provide. And, and specifically, one of those prayer priorities is kind of under the banner of provision. We have one prayer priority, it's called provision. And here, here are the things. We've been praying for a green card for Pastor Carlos and Raquel. We've been praying for a Hispanic leader to be raised up for our church, specifically to become an elder or deacon, to see Hispanics in our student ministry as well. We've been praying for space, for the Lord to expand our ability to physically have ministry. But then also, we have been praying for joyful, abundant, and sacrificial giving. We've been praying for those things over the past year. And I can stand here today and, and tell you just how gracious God has been. Pastor Carlos has his green card. Still waiting for Raquel's. Hopefully that one will come soon. 
Still waiting for the Hispanic leader to be raised up and to see more Hispanics within student ministry. Somehow we actually have less space than we did a year ago because of the flooding. But God is faithful and perhaps this will be an opportunity for us to do something with that space. But here's what I'm really excited about. I have no idea if the giving of the church has been uh, joyful or sacrificial. I, I, can't, I can't possibly know that. But here's what I do know. At this time last year, you may recall, the deacons had to send out an email saying, hey, uh, we may not be able to pay all the bills this week. We have practically no money. As of this past Monday, we have, or at least had on Monday, we paid some bills this week, over $47,000 in our bank account. And that is because God is gracious and he has provided through our church. That's not just from one particular person. It is from people giving abundantly. And it's been the Lord working through you. And so I praise God for that. I thank him for that. And I know that ultimately money is not the answer. But I praise God that we are in a place Right now, we're, we're able to kind of think about the future a little bit and say, okay, God, what are we seeking to do with this? So even church, I want to say thank you to you as well for the ways that you have been faithful. You know that I rarely talk about money and giving in the church, but as I was think, looking and praying through this passage, just reminded of God's faithfulness to us. And I praise him for how he has provided. So with this passage, ultimately, it's a call for us to consider our ways. There's the same thing in chapter one. It's the same thing now. Consider our ways. Is there a time, a talent, a treasure that you've been clinging to, that you've been afraid to kind of let go because you're afraid that the Lord won't provide? Maybe it's a time thing where be getting in the word or doing family worship or putting away social media. Like, oh no, I won't be connected to what's going on in the world. Maybe we don't need to be connected to all that's going on, at least in what we think is the world, our social media world at least. We're tempted to believe God won't provide, and I'm here to say he will. Why? Not because of anything we do, but because he has promised to be good to his children. Even you students. The church ultimately, I can tell you, you know, you guys mostly don't have jobs and a lot of money. The church doesn't need your money. But what we do need is your faithfulness. And so I invite you to give sacrificially, to serve faithfully, and to build those patterns and habits in your lives that over time will continue to honor the Lord. The same is true of those of you in this, this congregation who are wealthy. You know what? The church does not need your money because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But I urge you to continue being faithful and to continue trusting the Lord because he is good. We have missionaries, Hope and Adria, they need a generator. Our building needs repairs and upgrades. Awana needs volunteers. We need people to serve in the kitchen. We have all sorts of opportunities for people to be a part of what God is doing, ways to build the temple. But also you have neighbors who need to hear the gospel. You have coworkers who are lost and without hope. We have a chance to be God's beautiful presence in this world as his spirit works within us. So church, he's inviting us to trust him with our future needs in light of his unbreakable promise. So will we receive that invitation? Will we believe? Let me pray.
Father, we praise you and thank you for your graciousness to us, for how you have provided for us. And I pray, Father, I pray that we would consider our ways and that we would work on what you have called us to work on. May we lay aside all of the things that we worship and instead may we worship you alone. May we sacrifice both our time, our talents, and our treasure for the sake of your name because you are beautiful. And Lord, we praise you that ultimately you don't need us, but you invite us into these things. May we live with that in mind. We pray all this in Jesus' name.